I absolutely think our early success was both a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing because, you know, we're still here because we had success. So I'm appreciative for that. But I think the consequence as a first time business owner is that you think you have it all figured out when you have early success and that that success is sustained for a period of time. And it was for 12 straight years, we couldn't lose. Um, you know, I, I, I think when we stuck to our values and when we like, you know, pursued the mission that I had in my head, um, we couldn't, we couldn't lose for trying. Uh, I say that with a bunch of pride, but I also say that with, you know, a, like humility at this point, because once you think you have it all figured out, you stop practicing what Jim Collins uh, calls, you know, that productive paranoia, you know, like, what if this could be better? Why is it that I'm having success? Where's the success coming from? How am I creating value for my customer? Like, how do I know if that's what they think, you know, go and ask them, but you stop doing those things. If you think you have the answers figured out. For episode 153, I am republishing the most downloaded episode of 2023. It's certainly in the top five of my favorite conversations. I interviewed Jay Busada, the founder and CEO of Thrillworks, which he launched 24 years ago to help organizations take full advantage of the potential of digital. We're going through Jay's journey, the pivots he's made, the mistakes and the lessons he has learned. Jay is also a big fan of the bottleneck concept. And of course, we dig into it. This is the perfect episode if you want your business to be bulletproof. I'd like to wish you a happy new year 2024. And here's my resolution for you. Stop being the bottleneck in your business. Now take the first step and download the bottleneck index, the only tool in the world that will help you identify your potential bottlenecks, their impact on your business, and will provide you with practical recommendations to overcome them. It's free and available on my website. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. I'm super honored and excited to be here. It's it's uh, I've been looking forward to this since we first met. Excellent. Good start. Thank you. <laughs> so like I said, 1999, three works. So that's, that's what, 24 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about your journey and be, to be, becoming an entrepreneur and since, since then. Sure. I'd love to. Um, so I'll take you, I'll take you back. I live in uh, the Toronto area right now, but uh, mm-hmm. I grew up um, in the Quebec area in Canada here, really small little town, um, you know, and uh, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and back then, um, you know, one of the things that was quite formative for us, um, and I, I come from a family of six, I'm the second of four boys, was the fact that Quebec was trying to um, make sure that they didn't lose their heritage and their culture. So they passed a law that outlawed English. My family was English. Mm. And so I don't remember a lot from being a young youngster, but I do remember some of the challenges that we faced back then. My mom was an emergency room nurse. My dad owned a small business in that town that sold, you know, furniture, flooring, appliances, that kind of thing. And um, it was a real struggle, you know, to try to figure out how to stay in business when your parents can't speak French. Um, and I think it really created a lot of, um, you know, the habits and the grit and the resilience that um, that my brothers and I have today. It probably explains why two of them, plus me, have all went on to start our own businesses uh, that have all become relatively successful, I'm happy to say. So, 
um, you know, those formative years kind of left an impact and uh, I've never forgotten some of the lessons that we've learned. And I think that's really helped us last the almost 24 years that we've lasted. I, I will say that my timing could have been a little bit better uh, starting a, a digital business in 1999, right before the dot-com boom happened was, uh, was very scary, but, but, um, you know, just going back a little bit for a second, I, uh, I remember ever since, you know, I was a youngster, I do remember, um, always just being fascinated with trying to improve the world around me in some way, just remove the friction point. So, you know, whether it was automating something like lights when I was a kid, you know, before we had the smart homes that we have today or automating, turning on the, the coffee machine in the morning, like those simple little things always seem like obvious additions to life that would just remove friction points. And as I grew up, it seemed like the obvious choice to become an engineer. So I went about doing that and had the good fortune of working in a couple of different engineering firms and learning a lot about problem solving and and the 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 process of breaking down a problem and you know sequencing out a solution and all those things. Um, I also learned what I didn't want in business. You know, some of those professional service firms um, really kind of lacked the ability to understand, um, you know, where the real power of an organization comes from. And I think it comes from its people. Um, there's a lot of smart people that just don't seem to have, you know, the appro appropriate audience or, or voice with uh, senior management and great ideas, um, you know, go unseen. Uh, they go unheard. And so a business is lesser for it. And I knew that when I started Thrillworks, um, that's something I definitely wanted to bake into the process. And um, I will say um, when I, um, when I started uh, Thrillworks, it was, right around the time that I was having a lot of success as an engineer. Um, my bosses called me into the office one day and, uh, and they said to me, Hey, we'd like to actually promote you into this job that was going to basically require a three-year commitment on my part. And it was a highly sought after role inside the organization. And instead of accepting it enthusiastically, I quit on the spot. <laughs> and, uh, I had, what they didn't know is I was, you know, running Thrillworks in my off hours and uh, just fascinated with, with web technologies and building things with, you know, this, this code base that would run on any computer anywhere. HTML was just ubiquitous to every computer at the time. And it was fascinating me that you could actually like write code that would run on any computer that already existed. Never mind the fact that all these computers were interconnected. So when I announced that I was quitting, um, obviously they backtracked quickly and they said, Oh my God, no, no, you don't have to quit. Like keep the job that you have. And I said, no, I, I really got to pursue this opportunity. So I went home that night and I told my wife at the time that, um, that I just quit and, um, back to the poor timing on my part, she was nine months pregnant with our first child and wow. said, and of course you didn't talk to her about that before. No, 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 it's spontaneous, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so many lessons learned around that time. Um, but um, thankfully, after starting Thrillworks, we landed some some great clients, um, you know, and it really saw us through the the rough part of the dot com boom. We built some momentum, and I think it had a lot to do with just you know the way that we approach business here. I think um, obviously any product or solution you put forward has to include a great deal of quality. That's just non negotiable if you want to stay in business. But our approach to business is really quite different, and I think that's really seen us through so many iterations of what the internet has become, what business throws at you. And so we've been fortunate to capitalize on the luck that's come our way and, on, and, um, and get to work with some amazing customers. Mm. And that's kind of led us to where we are today. Right. 24 years running the business. I mean, you must have, I took many, many lessons 
to to share with us today. But I, I'm curious about uh, you know all the different stages of the business because because you started like you were by yourself, right? Yeah. Basically, yeah. how many how many people do you have do you have now? About seventy. About seventy. Okay. Can, yeah. can you can you identify for for us like the different stages of of your business growth? Absolutely, I can. Um, and so when we started, like you said, I started it as you know just one person um, building websites for businesses in the area. Uh, very quickly, uh, you know, I got a reputation for being able to deliver on time and and build what the customers were looking for. So I had a few agencies at the time that came knocking. It wasn't long before uh, we ended up hiring or, or I ended up hiring two or three people. Um, shortly after that, I actually took on a business partner for a while and then ended up buying him out. But um, after we got things rolling, you know, because we actually showed up a little bit differently than other businesses did, and that's to say, you know, our focus was first and foremost to make sure that our customers really, really felt heard. So instead of walking in as the expert and telling our customers exactly how we were going to do things, we started off with trying to get to the bottom of what problem they were trying to solve with this new thing called the internet. And, you know, as soon as our customers actually experienced that, it didn't matter who we were competing against. Our customers really kind of fell in love with the process of getting a chance to express the problem that they were trying to solve or the opportunity they were trying to capitalize on. And that really kind of built deep relationships with our customers that saw us through, you know, a lot of the internet challenges that came along and a lot of the explosive growth that came along. So, you know, what we actually problems were you solving at that time? Um, well, one of them was that, you know, nobody actually knew um, how to make good use of the internet. And so we needed our customers to turn over a lot of trust to us in order for us to kind of say, well, we think this is what we need to do. When content management came along, for example, um, you know, it, it had all kinds of great promise and that's, you know, content management for your audience who doesn't know what that is. It's basically software that allows you to run your own website. And so, um, you know, a lot of businesses wanted to like leap at that, but it was very cost prohibitive because it was very expensive at the time. And a lot of professional service firms didn't want to have anything to do with it because they thought like, well, if I build the site that you can run yourself, then there won't be any reason for coming back and buying more services off us. And we saw things very, very differently. We believe in like a very iterative process of building. So let's build something, we'll put it into market and then we'll iterate and improve and iterate and improve. Um, and so figuring out how to make use of the new technologies that were emerging, figuring out how to like use the internet effectively for businesses and deliver services to customers who were unfamiliar with how to use the internet. These were some of the challenges that our customers were putting forward to us. And we were only too happy to jump in and figure out how to do that for them. Uh, probably around year eight, we had reached about 12 people. And I realized that, um, you know, my business partner and I were really seeing the world differently and that was causing confusion inside the business. Right. And so we needed a unified vision if we were going to run the company and that just wasn't going to happen. So it was at that point that we decided to part ways. Um, and I took the business, you know, um, in the direction that I had intended to, which was be creative, be innovative, you know, bring solutions forward to our customers. Don't wait to be asked. Uh, you know, to solve a problem, spot the problem and proactively, you know, uh, propose solutions to them. That grew us to about 15 or 16 people. And we had some very recognizable clients, everyone from, you know, the Canada's largest uh, energy company to BlackBerry at the time, Tim Hortons, which is one of our largest 
uh, fast food retailers in the country. Uh, but we had gotten too big for me to actually participate on projects anymore at that point. And so I started backing away from the projects. And this is where, you know, in hindsight, I learned one of the most valuable lessons that I've learned as a, as a business leader. And that is, if you're not really clear, if your vision isn't crystal clear in the minds of the people working for you, then, you know, your secret formula for success requires you to be there every day. And so the only way to scale, the only way to empower smart people to, you know, move at speed and do their job well is for them to understand what the vision of the company is. And I didn't do that uh, around year 12. And so from year 12, um, you know, we were having great success, but things started to get a lot harder from years 12 through year 17. So 2012 to about 2017, because I just didn't publish the, the, uh, the values that we were making our decisions with and the, the vision that the company was operating under. And so a lot of people were making the decisions they thought I would want them to make, but they weren't really the decisions that I wanted the company to make. And so one day in 2017, when I walked in, I realized that I just did not love what we had become. We had drifted really quite far from, from the success that we were having up to 2012. Uh, and I had three choices. I could sell the company, I could shut it down, or I could take it back to our founding principles um, and like make the company what it had intended to be in the first place. And I chose the third option. Um, and then in doing so, you know, it forced the question, well, how do I go about doing that? And I knew that if consciousness, consciousness comes from the top, meaning, you know, I had to start with me. Yeah. And so I surrounded myself as best I could with a bunch of, you know, what I thought were successful business owners. I joined associations um, lo at the local level and at the national level. There's organizations here um, in Canada called the Entrepreneurs Organization. I joined it um, and then I found myself a leadership coach, not a business coach. I knew that what I lacked was leadership skills. I didn't want somebody telling me how to run the business. I wanted somebody holding a mirror up to show me how I was, how I was showing up as a leader. And so in 2017, we started that journey and, um, you know, have, have not looked back since it's been tumultuous. Um, but I do think the journey that we began back then really helped us weather the COVID storm much better than most businesses, because we believe in, in this constant reinvention of ourselves, like asking ourselves, is this the best way to do things? Right? Like I hate the idea of setting it and forgetting it. And that's a big part of what ThrowWorks stands for. We like to ask ourselves like, hey, are we still operating with the best information possible? That decision that we made, that process we put in place, when was the last time we revisited it? Has anything changed? Like, would we do it the same if we had to make that choice today? Mm. So when COVID hit and we were all forced to do business differently, you know, ThrillWorks was already in a constant state of like evolution. So we were able to weather that quite smoothly. Now, you know, I think businesses everywhere had a really rough go. So it's not to say that it was easy for us, but we certainly had almost an unfair advantage. And quite frankly, so did our customers because we bring that kind of thinking to them. We ask them on a regular basis, like, can we rethink a choice that we've made in the past? Is there a new technology that would allow us to do this better, cheaper, faster for you? And so our customers really love that because we don't wait around to be asked. Um, and it really serves the business well at, at the same time because, you know, it attracts excellent talent because they get to exercise that talent yeah i mean yeah you were like uh you said 16 people by 2017 are you 70 so something clearly happened in 2017 
there was a good example of how to become the bottleneck and get out of it. <laughs> yeah. I love your 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 belief system. You know, I've heard you talk about bottlenecks and I am a huge huge fan of the bottleneck concept. So, you know, I support that. That's one of the reasons I was so excited to get to talk to you because it's <laughs> it's a rarity to get to to uh, you know, geek out with somebody on a concept that I just think is so undervalued um in the marketplace so yeah uh, usually i ask my guests you know to 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 tell give me an example of when they were the bottleneck but you just did <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i i'm afraid to say that i've been the bottleneck many times inside the business so <laughs> yeah so so but you had like early success right do you think also it played a role the fact that you were so successful so quickly played a role in, uh, you know, uh, after what's 2017 in all the business business group, maybe the decisions you made or didn't? Um, I absolutely think our early success was a, both a blessing and a curse. Right. It was a blessing because, you know, we're still here because we had success. So I'm appreciative for that. But I think the consequence as a first-time business owner is that you think you have it all figured out. When you have early success and that that success is sustained for a period of time, and it was for twelve straight years, we couldn't lose. Um, you know, I, I I think when we stuck to our values and when we like you know pursued the mission that I had in my head, um, we couldn't we couldn't lose for trying. Uh, I say that with a bunch of pride, but I also say that with you know a, like humility at this point because once you think you have it all figured out you stop practicing what Jim Collins uh, calls, you know, that productive paranoia, you know, like, what if this could be better? Why is it that I'm having success? Where's the success coming from? How am I creating value for my customer? Like, how do I know if that's what they think, you know, go and ask them, but you stop doing those things. If you think you have the answers figured out. And that's where we found ourselves in 2012. We stop asking ourselves, like, what is it that's making us successful? And uh, so the early, early success was a blessing and a curse. Right, right. And the other very interesting aspect of what, what you said, which is um, another important topic, is you were talking about the importance of going back to the basics, the purpose, basically. I'm a big fan of uh, Simon Sinek's start, start With Why. I've been talking about it on this show several times. You clearly mentioned that you lost the purpose, you lost uh, the original you know, reason, the raison d'etre in French, yep. why the company exists. But, and you had to come back to it to find success again. And so I would like to know what is that raison d'etre and where were you? Where did the company go? How did it drift? Yeah, yeah. Well, it drifted. Um, I'll start with that part first. It drifted because I just never shared the raison d'etre out of my, outside of my own head. I just assumed, you know, and, uh, you know, assuming anything is dangerous in business. I assumed that people understood the driving motivations behind how I was making decisions at the project level for those first 12 years. Yeah. You know, I assumed that when people were shoulder to shoulder with me or when they watched me, you know, interact with customers, that it, it went unsaid how I was making those decisions, but it really doesn't. And even if it does, like there is nothing to be gained by withholding the, you know, stating explicitly why a business exists. And ours, um, you know, to, to put it simply is to, you know, and expose and exploit those overlooked digital opportunities that every business has, and then capitalize on those opportunities for our customers. Now, 
that sounds simple, but there's a couple things that had to be in place. And I alluded to this when I was talking about what I learned at the engineering firms. You know, the first thing that that I knew um, we always had to do, and I do this in all aspects of my life, is, um, you know, I try to give a good listening to whoever I'm talking to before I start making recommendations. So, you know, as Stephen Covey says, and one of my favorite quotes is, you know, seek first to understand before you try to be understood. Yes. Um, because once, once a person feels understood, it's, it's oxygen to the soul. You can build trust and with trust, somebody will allow you to lead them. And with a good listening to and permission to lead, you can help somebody get to the solution that they hope to get to, even if it means taking them in a direction that they wouldn't have chosen naturally. And so, you know, much of what we have to do for our customers involves understanding what they want, but helping them understand what they need to do to get what they want. Because if they knew what they needed to get what they wanted, they wouldn't need us. Yeah. So we can't do that without first building trust. And that seems like an odd thing for a business to say, and then possibly maybe an obvious thing for a business to say, but we're very intentional about how we go about trust building first, then giving them a good listening to, then uh, offering to lead. And then repeating that process, you know, uh, almost in a flywheel fashion over and over. And most of our business relationships last a dozen years or more, which is almost unheard of in the professional service field. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. It makes me think about my business, you know, where because in a, in a coaching industry, the relationship with a client is very important. You know, I have, before you become my client, for instance, I have to make sure first that, you know, you're the right person for me, but also on your part, it's very important. You don't know me. You need to make sure that I am the right person, that you can you can trust me. And so I find out like every time, you know, I try to get to to go faster in in in, in getting clients faster, I'm always stuck because and then I always go back to the basic, which is to build the trust, having a lot of conversations with people so that they understand what it is that I do, they are comfortable with it. That's is it this is what you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. And, and a lot of these concepts, you know, translate well outside the business realm, right? Like a good friendship is based heavily on trust. We just don't know that we're creating trust when we're, you know, slowly creating a best friend relationship somewhere. But a best friend can really almost get you to do anything because you do tend to trust them, right? You, you trust that they have your best interest in mind and that they wouldn't, they wouldn't want harm to come to you. So when they say, Hey, let's go do X, Y, Z. And you're like, Oh, I've never thought of doing that. And it doesn't really interest me, but if you want to do it, maybe it'll be fun. And so you can actually like get exposed to a lot of things based on trust-based relationships. And so I think, you know, without that, um, any business quickly becomes a commodity. And so it's important to lead with that in our case. And all good things that we're able to do with our customers come from this ongoing process of trust building. And it's not just a one-time occurrence. We don't just do that at the beginning of the relationship and then hope that our work does the talking for us. We have to show up and every day try to understand where our customers are coming from, what their customers need from them, what the marketplace is demanding of our customer's product, what our customers value in us. Um, and so once we have that figured out, then you get permission to lead. And with that leadership, you know, comes a responsibility of being proactive and, and accomplishing great things with your customers. So. Yeah. So that I'm curious then, I want, I want to have your opinion on a, on a particular topic because you are in the B2B industry and in the B2C industry, especially with a SaaS uh, 
you know, um, companies start in the startup world, there is this tendency where, you know, if you want to scale up, you need to automate as much as possible. And, you know, the less you talk to customers, the better. This is the, this is the impression that I have. Do you share that with me? And how can we build trust in it in that case? Well, I think it depends what the nature of the interaction is. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the first example that comes to mind that would support automating um, something in a B2C world would be Amazon's one-click checkout. Now, when you're in a, you know, physical consumer space or retail space, it's a great idea if you want to actually increase the size of somebody's um, basket or, you know, their purchase to keep them in the store and talk to them a little bit longer, expose them to more product. Um, they tend to buy more when they spend longer periods of time in the store. But context matters. And so to answer your question, when the context changes, then you really need to apply the, the contextual change to the scenario. So in Amazon's case, they were very wise to understand that people don't interact in the digital space the way they do in a physical space. I might come back to a website three or four or five times in a day, but I don't want to spend 15 or 20 minutes or half an hour browsing the website every time I come. Like the web shopping experience is different. I want it to be fast. I want it to be easy. I want to get in and I want to get out and I'll come back more often. Retail doesn't work that way. Physical retail. So understanding the context will matter. So automating in that case was helpful. If you automate customer service, you know, when somebody has a problem, that's unhelpful. And I think Zappos was a really good example of finding that that happy balance. You know, when they when they were first born as a company, they grew up selling shoes. And they quickly realized that, you know, providing a a radically different form of customer service online was going to make the difference. Like free shipping. People's hesitance to purchase had everything to do with the fact that like I can't put my hands on this. I don't know if it's the right size and I don't want to buy the wrong one if I have to pay for shipping shipping. Yeah. So they removed that friction point. And they said, why don't you order three or four different pairs, like two sizes on either side of the one that you think you need. We'll ship them to you for free and then ship us back the ones that you don't need. We'll cover the cost. Sales went through the roof. Beyond that, and one of my favorite stories um, was um, they trained their customer service personnel um, on how to handle customer service calls completely opposite how everyone else tends to have it. So most call centers score their personnel on how many calls they can handle a day. Zappos used an approach that said, you get an improved score depending on how long you take with a customer. Now we don't want you to drag out a phone call, but like you get a better score if your calls last longer because we're making sure that we're giving due attention and time to everyone who calls. And they had somebody apparently who spent eight hours on a call with a customer who called in asking questions. And that person is like apparently quite well known for having done so inside the company, that's not how most call centers work. So context does matter in this case. And I, I don't know if that answers the question, but I, I think without context, you know, the, you could be led down the wrong path trying to answer that question. Yeah. Thank you. No, it does. It does answer the question. And I, I've heard that, that, that story uh, before. Um, I want to go back to you, the entrepreneur and the, and the human being behind the entrepreneur. <laughs> what, have you, what have you learned about yourself? Being an entrepreneur, um, lots, and I'll start with um, with the importance of boundaries. I, I think, you know, when I was an entrepreneur, you know, I would work, you know, in the early days, endless hours, yeah. and you know, I would 
try to make up for any shortcomings that happened with, you know, a staff member. Um, because I wasn't clear with what they needed, they would put in best efforts. If it was wrong, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to tell them. And so I would just make up the difference. And as a result of that, it was very difficult for anybody um, working with me to get better because they never knew when they did something wrong. And so when I started to enforce boundaries about like, I need you to get better at this, I can't do the work for you. Um, you know, that could seem if taken out of context, like, you know, just a, a pleasant way of delegating and making the delegator feel good about themselves. It really isn't. When you set boundaries up, you know, these are our values. We hire only on these values and we fire based on these values. This is our vision. You need to believe in this vision or you can't be part of the team. You know, boundaries are actually like the only way to create a healthy environment. And so people know how to score. People know when they're out of bounds, for example, and without them, um, you know, it becomes almost impossible to scale a business. It, uh, it will only move at the speed that the entrepreneur can move uh, if you don't enforce those boundaries. So, you know, that lesson has served me well, um, far beyond, you know, the, the entrepreneurial world. I'm the father of, of two grown children at this point. And, you know, boundaries was one of the most healthy practices that we had inside the family. And so, um, I think it's translatable everywhere. I think another thing that I found is like the ability to rethink, um, a choice is critical. It showed up first, as I said, you know, as a small child where I always wondered, like, can we make this better? Is this the best way of doing something? Like, is there a better version that has emerged since the last time that we decided, you know, um, you know, how to solve this problem? And I think I've adopted that kind of thinking outside of the business as well. And I try to coach all of the team members on this, uh, on this thinking. And then lastly, I've really come to understand that it's my job to help grow other leaders inside the business. It's not enough to be a leader myself. Part of being a leader is coaching others so that they can become leaders in their own respect. And, you know, those lessons I, I couldn't learn early enough. I wish I learned them earlier, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. The last one, grow, grow the, your leaders. Yes, absolutely. Otherwise, you become the bottleneck again. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But you see that all the time, you know, people hiring uh, leaders or so-called leaders, and then they don't empower them with decision-making power uh, because they're going to tell you, well, but I don't trust them. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. How the heck would you hide them? <laughs> right. And your A players don't want to be in an environment yeah. where they don't feel trusted or when they where they can't move at speed. And so if, you know, I use this analogy on a frequent basis when coaching anyone inside the company. If I was to say, you know, to somebody, I need you to build me a four bedroom house on this piece of property. And that's all the information I gave you. What are the odds that it's going to be right? Even if they're incredibly talented at construction, you know, they're going to make constant mistakes because they're going to be making assumptions on what I want. And when I show up, I'm like, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. So the best thing that we can do for talented people is to create a very clear image in their mind of what you're looking for. And then support them so that they can move at speed and like, you know, execute their craft, feel good about making like effective choices at speed and then coach them on, uh, you know, anything that they do that tends to get in their way of becoming a better version of themselves. Now you need to find people who want to grow, who want to coach. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's kind of fundamental on our part, not to get in the way of people's success by giving them, 
by by setting them up for failure by not giving them clarity and the opportunity to succeed. Um, and I think you know, unfortunately, it took me a little too long to figure that out. But I do think that we're there now as a business, and uh, and we have some fantastic leaders inside our company, and um, and we can really tell the difference, as you said, like. You know, our growth demonstrates that. And I think our customers are quite fanatical about what we bring to the table for them. And so we're we're blessed to work with good customers who like, you know, the relationships that we have. So then what's next for your business? Where, where do you want to take it to? So there's a lot left um, for Thrillworks to do. I, you know, our, our goal in part, um, one of our many goals is to really uh, change the industry. And I know, you know, there's a lot of businesses that want to think that, but I'd love to show, you know, um, the business world that there is a better way of operating in the professional service space. You know, I think somebody needs to be first, uh, and I'm happy to be that, that first. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, going back to some of the first things that we talked about, starting with trust, you can't just provide quality anymore. You know, we really need to create an exceptional customer service experience. We need to like build trust-based relationships that last for long periods of time. None of this, you know, one and done kind of thinking and really help businesses succeed because, you know, they have trust in the relationship that we have. Um, I'd love to show the world a better version of this. And we've seen this on a regular basis, right? It becomes kind of like a watershed moment when you get it right. I think, you know, the first guy that ran the four minute mile, like nobody could do it until the first person did it. And then after the first person did it, you know, I think it was like 30 or 40 people like suddenly could do it. You know, it's not like anything changed other than the mindset. Once somebody can demonstrate that there is a better way of doing things, it can cause a watershed moment. And that's kind of what we want to be in the industry to say there's a better way of, of providing professional services and building digital solutions that don't have to be the, you know, um, I'm going to tell you you know, what to do. And you're just going to sit there and let me like, I, I think the industry deserves something better than that. And we'd like to be the model for it. So we got some road to travel. Um, I think, you know, we need, uh, a little more size and, uh, you know, we need to work on making sure that our reputation continues to get out there for this kind of thing. But I do think it will become, um, you know, quite an addictive concept once we can actually show the world that there is some value to it. After 24 years, I can still feel the passion in you. Oh, there's still work to be done. I'm not done yet. Yes. <laughs> Will you ever stop? I don't think so. I actually, uh, you know, on a regular basis. Does your wife know? <laughs> oh, well, unfortunately, I'm not married anymore. I think that probably has something to do with quitting my job when she was nine months pregnant. But, but um, yes, I, I think my partner is very supportive and she... She constantly loves the, you know, the, the problem solving. She finds it endearing to a point when I'm, when I'm always trying to improve the household though, I think that might wear thin on her a little bit, but, um, but no, I, I don't think an engineer has an, or, or an, or an entrepreneur has an off switch. I think we're always, you know, trying to improve things. So it may not always look like a, a CEO role that I, that I hold, but I definitely want to continue to kind of spread the idea that there are there is real value in rethinking previous choices um, based on, you know, new context and and new technologies and new ways of thinking. So, um, no, I can't see this ever ending. And so would that be the, the one recommendation you would give to other entrepreneurs? Rethink your previous choices? I think... Um, yes, that would be one of, of the... the um, 
recommendations that I would make to any entrepreneur on a regular basis, Rethink. There's a great book called Rethink, by the way. I think it was written by Adam Grant um, that really touches on this and goes a little bit deeper on that matter. You know, I think if there was if there was one thing, if I had, you know, one wish and I could go back um, in time, I think that the thing that I would probably do is make sure that like my vision was very clearly stated so clearly that anybody inside the organization could repeat it. I think doing so immediately repels the wrong uh, employees and the wrong customers, and it attracts the right employees and right customers. And I think it's not a silver bullet, but it's definitely the starting point to getting everything else right. Attracting A players is is fundamental, but um, you know much of this really depends on having the right vision if you want to attract the right people. Yeah, you you talked about it several times. It makes sense. Um, I have another question for you. What what are you are the proudest of? Um, I think lasting 24 years, you know, has forced us to actually reinvent ourselves several different times. And um, the adaptability of of the business is something that I'm very proud of. I think it's part of any business, right? The the set it and forget it mentality is the surest way to kill a business in the in the shortest period of time. And so, you know, I think that um, you know, Thrillworks has been successful at consistently asking ourselves, you know, what do our customers need from us and how do we become that while remaining true to our values? And um, I think Jim Collins, you know, puts it really eloquently. He's, he said, preserve, preserve the core and stimulate progress. So keep your values near and dear, but don't be precious about your strategies and tactics, like reinvent them as necessary. And I, I think that is so true. It's something that we talk about on a regular basis uh, inside the company. And it's something that I try to do in my personal life on a regular basis. But this is a great way to conclude uh, this uh, interview. Last question, how can people contact you? Uh, I, we would love to hear from anybody who wants to hear more about what we're doing or even, you know, have more of a conversation that on any of the things we've spoken about today at thrillworks.com. Um, please contact us there or through any of the social channels that exist. We're at thrillworks.com on Twitter and you can reach us on Instagram as well. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Jay, for your time today. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, Laurent. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you like this show, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform so you can help inspire more entrepreneurs. See you next time. Bye for now.